Hi, my name is Serbi Serna, and I'm currently a group partner at Y Combinator working on investing in healthcare companies, including life science and medical device. I'm also the author of an upcoming book called Without a Doubt. And to me, femtech is human health. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with fem health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Serbi Sarna, author of Without a Doubt. In this book, Serbi gives us an inside look at her entrepreneurial journey and shows how she proved the naysayers and doubters wrong by using the very qualities that had made her feel different her whole life. Serbi is the founder and former CEO of Envision Medical, a first-of-its-kind microcatheter for the detection of ovarian cancer. The device was acquired by Boston Scientific in 2018 for $275 million, y'all. That's more than a 15x return to her investors. Today, Serbi is the first female partner at Y Combinator focused exclusively on health tech, medical devices, and therapeutics. In this interview, we discuss how Serbi built her femtech company from ideas she had in high school to a successful exit as a mother of two, her advice to founders on networking and pitching investors, and how to recognize burnout and what to do about it. This is a great episode to learn about Serbi's new book, Without a Doubt, which is available to buy now. We're dropping links in the show notes for you to purchase yours today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Serbi, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Do you like my virtual background? I chose the fallopian tube one just for you today. I love it. Fallopian tube and ovary. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. I was like, which that's my background thing. should that's I my choose? Thing. And I was like, oh, totally fallopian tubes and ovaries. Absolutely. That's what 100%. I'm going with today. Y'all, this was is the on right YouTube, call. by the way. If anyone ever wants to watch this on YouTube, give a look. But uh, in the meantime, I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, I feel like I've heard about you for years and then... Uh, we got introduced the for the first time, shockingly, a few weeks ago by a mutual mentor of ours, Anula. So I just think this is way overdue. But honestly, the universe works in mysterious ways, as you put out in your book many a times, that sometimes the right connections happen when they're meant to happen, right? And so I think that, you know, we were meant to meet now so we could promote your book that's coming out. So when is Ooh. when is your book coming out? March 7th, just like five days away. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This episode's likely launching y'all after that. So go, uh, where can they get it? Amazon? They can find it Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBookstore.com. If you want to find, to support your local bookstore, you could do it through that website. Love it. It's everywhere. Without a doubt, such a good book. How to go from underrated to unbeatable. Ah, I love it. I love it. Um, I feel like that is like the motto of Femtech, right? Like going from underrated to being like, oh, wait, this is like the hottest thing ever. Um, so <laughs> I feel yeah, like absolutely. maybe you're a similar story, right? Like you talk a lot of in the book about being 
um, you know, just underrated people looking past you. Right. And now all of a sudden you're a partner at YC. So it's just, it's just a, a really great mirroring relationship between our industry and your personal experience. Yeah, that's, that's really well said, you know, back when I first started working in women's health, you know, femtech hadn't quite been coined yet as a term and investors still thought it was okay to call women's health bikini medicine. So I'm glad that we've moved into the space that we have now, you know? Yeah, we've come a far long way. We got much further to go, but stories like yours are what's going to, you know, honestly move us forward. So Serby, let's kick this off by telling us, uh, first, just tell me why, you know, what is this book about? Why would somebody read it? Who should read it? What made you write it? Yeah, you know, until just a few weeks ago, I wasn't even on Twitter. I tend to be a relatively private person. So when a publisher first approached me about writing the book, I actually said no. But then I realized this sort of recurring pattern of every time I went to go to a speaking engagement, the people that lined up to ask me questions after were either of color or women, you know, and Sure, there were some like white guys sprinkled in there too, but in terms of the overall makeup of the line, even if, you know, only 20% of the conference attendees were women, 80% of my line was women, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that I have like the best path to success. And like, what does success even mean, right? Success is so much in the eye of the beholder. But I I could at least offer my path to following my dreams, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole time that I did that, that I was working on this product that I thought patients really needed, absolutely, I was underrated and doubted. And, you know, in the book, I talk about this instance of some, you know, being at a booth representing the company at a conference and, you know, a guy walks up and he looks at the device and he's like, oh, wow, this looks really interesting. Can you uh, introduce me to the CEO, you know, as he's looking over my shoulder? And so, you know, ultimately I wrote the book so that other people, if they're feeling that doubt, if they're feeling underrated, they hopefully make the decision to just keep going. Mm -hmm. Like that's the number one most important thing. If you're a leader or you're developing a product or you're starting a company that, you know, you just decide it's worth doing that the potential of the product, the potential of what you're working on overrides the doubt that you're feeling. Yeah. I actually identified with your story in my current endeavors, you know, at Fem Health Insights and Femtech Focus, I could identify a lot, but actually, I don't know if you anticipated this result, but I have had a close a startup before where I had fundraised and it didn't work out. I had to close and lay people off, tell investors weren't they getting their money back. And honestly, I felt a lot of um, comfort reading some of your story based on that experience where I was almost like giving some love back to Brit seven years ago, Brit, you know, Um, where I was like, oh, that was a tough time. And like, look at this woman who similarly had a tough time. It just gave me some more compassion. So not only are you speaking to my present day founder self, but my previous founder lives as well. Um, In general, like just in short, what's your book about? Uh, so it's about how I flipped a teenage cancer scare into the a company working on early detection of ovarian cancer, which was eventually acquired by Boston Scientific um, and sort of what it took to fundraise in the women's health world back in 2011, 2012, and uh, what it meant to get FDA approval, do clinical trials and 
do all of that while being underrated and having the doubt, you know, both as someone who was a brown woman without a higher degree uh, and working in a space which is vastly overlooked and in some ways still is. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, that's a great description. <laughs> Better than I could have summarized it. Let's tap into that early medical scare you had. So, you know, you said something happened in high school uh, medically that really triggered this entire journey. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it was, um, early on in high school and it was 13 and all of a sudden I, you know, I was working on a paper doing standard high school stuff, thinking it was going to be a standard high school day. Uh, when all of a sudden I felt such a sharp pain in my side that I could barely make it to my mom and say my side hurts before blacking out, you know? Um, and it's interesting when I tell the story, I tell it the same way because I just remember it so clearly. You know, mm -hmm. I remember walking the three steps up to the kitchen area and those steps like hurting on every one and then seeing her back and saying like mom and then just not remembering anything, kind of remembering falling to the floor a little bit. But um, the next thing I remember is uh, waking up in the hospital and the the uh, physicians there thought that it was appendicitis. Mm -hmm. And so they actually prepped me for the surgery and they were about to do the surgery when one of the surgeons realized that that wasn't what was ailing me. And soon after that, they realized I was suffering from complex ovarian cysts, but what they couldn't tell me is if those cysts were cancerous. Mm -hmm. So that kind of set off my whole you know, doing research in the women's health space, doing research about ovarian cancer. You know, that's where my good indignation got started. Well, I actually really related to that story. So I've, you know, uh, had ovarian cysts and my first one was at 13. And I can remember going to my mom saying, my side hurts, my side hurts. It wasn't nearly as bad as your experience. I think I may have felt it maybe a little bit earlier before it burst or anything. But um, I remember going to my mom being like, my, I have cramps in my side, cramps in my side. And my mom and I always kind of laughed that she would tell me, oh, you have gas, like go lay down <laughs> and rub your belly. You know? and, uh, and then eventually one evening I went out and the living room was like, mom, it's really hurting. And so she took me to the doctor and sure enough, they were like, you have a cyst. Um, but mine was so big. The first one, at least they had to do surgery to remove it. And um, since then I've been on birth control and honestly, Serby, I think a lot about even, you know, in my current career as somebody who professionally just talks about femtech research, it publishes on it. Um, I actually don't know. There's like no solution to my cysts. Like there was a time in my twenties where I stopped birth control for a little bit and I got them right back and they, were, oh, man. they burst. And I was like laying on the bathroom floor in the cold tile with like that pain. My sister has it. She's had several surgeries. She's not as good at taking her birth control as I am. Um, <laughs> younger sister struggles versus older sister. But, um, you know, uh, I know this isn't in your book, but have you heard of any, you know, uh, advancements in ovarian cysts? I feel like this is something that doctors just say like, oh, you have cysts on your ovary, like they will pop occasionally and be super painful, or you can just take birth control for the rest of your life. Like, have you heard about any advancement in this? Uh, so I remember somebody at some point wanting to use like a neuromodulation similar technique, but I'm not sure it got anywhere or it had sort of the proof of concept that's necessary. When, when after high school, when I was at Berkeley, I remember reading like a ton about cysts to see what a potential solution could be. 
And I don't remember finding anything. Yeah, I still have yet to come across any company, med device, therapeutic, anything. So y'all, if you out there, please work on cis because I would really love to not be on hormonal birth control anymore. And, you know, uh, there's currently no solution offered to me. So just throwing that request out there to the innovators that are listening. Um, And it's amazing how many of women's health problems, they just say like, go take some birth control, right? Yes. Like amazing how often the solution is go take some birth control or let's just pull the anatomy out, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. I remember, I remember one investor telling me, Hey, well, if a woman is at high risk for developing ovarian cancer, why do we need a diagnostic tool? Why doesn't she just like, why doesn't she just get her ovaries out? And I remember looking at him and being like, yeah, like if you were at high risk for testicular cancer, you would just like give up your balls. Just remove them. Put just remove them. Like, who cares? What's I mean, it matter? Yeah. Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I My think, gosh, yeah. I think he, I think he sort of got it after I said that, though. Yeah, but he, and he's basing it off of our cu- current culture and society, which is like, oh, I think you actually even put a statistic in the book, like a, a uterus is removed every minute or every two minutes. Yeah, um, it's a, it's something States. absolutely crazy like yeah. that. It's it's insane how often that happens. You know, even for um, if you just think about like the numbers for ovarian cancer, right? There's 14 to 20,000 cases of ovarian cancer each year, but there's 600,000 surgeries where the ovaries removed. And I, then, read, I was like, what? It's like a less than 10%, even worse than that percentage of like actual positive cancer. Otherwise your ovaries are just, they come out and they're like, oops, it's, they're healthy. Just And kidding. you're still, you're still diagnosing cancer, ovarian cancer at stage three or four, usually like this is not a solution. No. Uh. Oh, I'm so glad you made what you made. Uh, and just for the listeners, they're, they're like, oh my gosh, is it on the market? First of all, read the book. But I I, I know that it's still finishing clinical trials because the pandemic kind of delayed it a little bit, right? Right, right. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that we'll be in a position to start those trials again sometime soon, you know? Um, but the the data that we got in the beginning, you know, before the acquisition is really promising, Yeah, it looks, sounds like it. Yeah, so exciting. Well, one of the things you talk about throughout the book is networking. So even from the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey, you seem to always be meeting the right people like Anula and Foz, some of my favorite femtech, you know, people too. Maybe we'll have a femtech mafia, not like the PayPal mafia, but like a femtech, like these like uh, pillar people, you know, I feel like they're kind of in all of our stories. So Foz and Anula, you meet them. In the book, you write, um, the key to unlocking the power of serendipity and networking is with an open mind. What does that mean? And what other networking advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, you know, right in the beginning, when you start on your journey, it's not like, you know, a whole lot of people, right? Like for me, I started the company when I was 25. It's not like you have a huge Rolodex. Mm -hmm. So you basically have to talk about your concept and what you're doing to whoever will listen. And when you do that, the connections that can form just out of doing that are pretty incredible. You know, the way that I met Anula was that I had a close high school friend who was visiting her parents. She'd moved away from the Bay Area. She was visiting her parents. Her and I were having a beer. 
And I remember that her dad is an entrepreneur in the tech space. And so I just asked if I could come over for dinner. And her dad told me all of these amazing stories about, you know, his company. Um, and her mom realized that she knew someone that did clinical trials out of India. And remember, I'm in the US. I have a sketch of a device on the back of a napkin. Uh, I'm nowhere near doing clinical trials in India. But I think, okay, this person seems worth talking to. And she's the one that introduced me to Anula, who then introduced me to my first three investors, right? Yeah. And I think that um, sometimes founders, they're so worried about competition and kind of revealing what they're doing, but there's yeah. so many ways to talk about the overall concept without specifically getting into anything that could, you know, give away your IP. And, you know, even if you did, the chances that the person that you're talking to is going to steal it or something like that, or have the wherewithal to go start working on it. I mean, it's just so minimal. So um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I did a lot of just like taking the me like taking meetings and just like asking everybody I knew if they would like sit down with me and then had any connections for me and that sort of thing, you know? So being really persistent, but not picky in the beginning mm -hmm. is how I would describe your, like the way to, the way to network. I would also throw in patient. You were very patient throughout the book, I noticed, where you were like, they didn't email me back for six weeks. And so then I sent them just a little note like, hey, and, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, so patient, so persistent, you know, but in a really respectful way. I think that one of the things you did really well was make human connections with people. You write in the book, it's OK to be genuinely excited when talking about something you love. It often pays off because people feel connected to you. Tell us a little bit more about that. What is that genuine excitement about a product and how is, how is that enabling you to network? Yeah. You know what? It's like, I, um, I think that society thinks it's cool just to play it cool. Like, Hey, yes, like, don't, yes, you know, like, don't, like, right. don't, like, don't show too much emotion about stuff. Yeah. Like just, just be chill. Like, don't be too excited. Like, don't be too upset. Like, just like chill, you know, just why yeah. can't you just be chill? But for me, it's like, I think the world is glorious. Like when yeah. the sun hits my face, I appreciate it every time. You know, I had a girlfriend, a uh, close girlfriend and I traveled through Japan and we were seeing a ton of temples and she was like, this is the fifth temple we've seen today. Like, why are you so excited? And I was like, <laughs> it's beautiful. You know, look around us. And so I am equally excited about people. I'm equally excited about product. Like, I'm out here to live. I'm out here to learn, you know? And I think that because society has taught us like just play it cool. Yeah. We worry about showing that excitement and okay, maybe it turns off some people, but at least in my lifetime, in my professional career, people love that energy because no one yeah. else, it's not like over the top obnoxious, you know, but yeah, the other day I was having a meeting with my partners and we were all describing, you know, different companies that we funded and how everyone's doing. And I was talking about a company and I was like, I am just so grateful that I'm on the sidelines and I'm here cheering them on to be part of this, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it's more emotional than like what the other guys were saying at that moment, yeah. but, but it's like, it's how I feel. So I yeah. see it and I got a good, like people like that, you know, yeah. it's human, yeah. it's human. So I would just say, let the excitement show, That's you know, crazy. don't. And then the other side of that is like to never fabricate it. 
to never fabricate it. People have like, even if they don't know that they have the radar for that, they'll totally pick it up. Mm -hmm. Like anything that you say should be pretty genuine, especially any positive emotion, Mm -hmm. you know? You think that it would be almost impossible to have to fake excitement about a product that you're going to be successful at? Because it almost sounds like in order to be successful, you need to be positively obsessed, you know, with something. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, or so it's almost like if a founder is having to fake excitement, it's almost like, well, they should almost kind of check in with what they're working on. I totally agree with that. I can agree with that more. It's like, eventually, if you're not that excited about the product, if opening up the demo or holding the device or whatever it is, doesn't make you feel amazing, you will just give up. It just gets too hard. It just becomes not worth it. You know, you're uh, bringing up so much for me. My first company was called Faramore. It was a DNA based dating app. And near the end of it, I was joking with my partner. I would say, Farah, no more. Farah, no more. You know, <laughs> yeah. Because it was just like such a drain. And we'll talk about burnout and stuff. But like, that there was like a, a significant turning point of like, this isn't driving with me anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 hundred percent. That's when, you know, yeah. when you're making that your company uh, name, a meme, that's when, you know, it's done. Something that you talked about in the book. Um, and I mean, it's right in the title, right. Being underrated was people were skeptical of your idea. Um, uh, they were like, you're going to put a camera in the fallopian tube? Like, no way. No one's ever done that. And I love how you wrote in the book, well, I thought to myself, if innovators had figured out how to navigate thin blood vessels in the brain, couldn't someone figure out fallopian tubes? I love that because that's so much of femtech. One, a lot of people just haven't even tried yet. So it's not like it's impossible. It's just that no one's tried it. But then also like we hear people talk about, oh, women's health is so niche. And it's like, if you explored your brain about all these other markets and like your preconceived notions of them, but you've overcome them and seen them to be like big opportunities, whether that be crypto or space tech or whatever it is, right? Like, how can you not do that with femtech? So what do you have to say to founders who are being scoffed at, who are, you know, pitching ideas that people are like, that's impossible. And, you know, they're just, they're just being questioned. Yeah. You know what? Here's the thing. I always carefully listened and even sought out the naysayers sometimes, especially people who had tried a similar idea in the past and failed. Those people are usually the ones that are going to be most adamant that you're never going to be able to make the product work because they tried a million different things and it didn't happen. And, um, and I, you know, so it's easy to just wave off people when they have that type of experience and doubt and just be like, Oh, well, you know, I don't know. You were just like barking up the wrong tree the whole time. So I'm not here to listen to any of that. Mm -hmm. Instead I would meet with them and then I would take copious notes and ask them so many questions and meet them again and again to like have them tell me why they thought this was never going to work. You know what I mean? Almost doing like almost doing the opposite, like seeking it out and listening But the big thing is I didn't let it stop me. I didn't let it discourage me. So I think that's kind of a fine line. I think generally as an entrepreneur, you want to assume that everyone you're talking to is smart and show them a level of respect, especially if they've tried something that you're trying. 
you never want to assume the person you're talking to is stupid. It has nothing of value to say. It's more just like, yeah, they're smart. They tried a bunch of stuff. Maybe they paved the way and now you're going to learn from it, you know? So I would say, don't just ignore them. Talk to them. Listen to them. Um, when you do that too, it's easier to when an investor is talking to you about it, be like, oh yeah, I did talk to that company that tried it. I did. And these are the four reasons they failed. And this is what we're doing differently. You know, um, the other thing is if you feel strongly that a problem needs to be solved and you're really in it, then often you will be able to overcome whatever doubt you're feeling. The desire to solve that particular problem will override the doubt right? Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so important to pick the right problem. Wow. Such good advice. I, um, you know, I definitely had my own fair share of experiences of people, you know, literally scoffing like, ha, you know, at, at something where I'm like, no, I'm actually working on that. Like, <laughs> um, uh, but for more so for me, my experience has been uh, people questioning like, wait, you're going to, you're going to do that now. Almost like I was too young, too unexperienced. And like, who was I to say, I'm going to start the six femtech venture fund. Right. So I co-founded Coyote Ventures with Jess, uh, Jess Carr. She's incredible. She's running the fund now and like doing amazing investments. But like when I started, when I co-founded it with her and I started fundraising and telling people, yeah, I'm starting a venture fund. They were like, (gasps) like somehow I had to go through (laughs) enough pain or experiences or decades of literally just my life had to be older in order for me to be qualified to do it. And it was like, well, here are my credentials. Here's my deal flow. Here's my experience. I've worked in venture. I've had, you know, like, and then they'd be like, well, okay, I guess so, you know, but at first they'd be like you right now, like you don't look like a venture capitalist, right? It's not what they necessarily said, but it's what I asked what am I missing? They were like, well, I guess you have the things, you know, just, uh, you know, unexpected. And it's like, okay, well, it's interesting. How, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting how humans do that. Right. Because we know fundamentally when we think about it intellectually, we all know that we're very complex beings, but somehow we just love putting one another in boxes. Oh, we love boxes. Humans we love, love boxes. Yeah. We love pattern recognition. We love boxes and, you know, when you're someone that's outside of that box initially from what they're used to seeing, you know, mm-hmm. that's the reaction that you get, you know? And then at that point you just, I mean, it's terrible to be in that situation, but then you just kind of have to decide, you know, am I going to let them put me in that box or am I just going to push forward anyway? Yeah. I almost feel like that, um, like in theory is similar to femtech as an industry because women's health devices weren't fitting nicely into health tech. Right. And so I did 10 all of a sudden was like, maybe we need a new box because, because human nature is to label things is to put things in things. Right. I always kind of joke around, like people are like, but femtech is not the right name to use. And I'm like, literally, I don't care. All I care about is women's <laughs> lives. I mean, and like, this is, I am the founder of Femtech Focus. I'm the founder of Fem Health Insights. Right. Like I use that word in my business and yet I don't, I don't care for me. It's a, it's a white labeled term to get people on board with what women's health is and that it's many times more complicated than regular, just healthcare. It's uh, more, you know, complex than just a typical medical device or like, there's just like all these extra barriers. And so I do think it needs its own label. I hope one day we can just have health tech and that half of them are half of the devices are working in women's health. But until then, 
I think we needed a box to kind of show the different qualities of our devices. Do you agree with that? Or actually, I'd love your opinion on, you know, you started prior to femtech being a word. What do you think about the word femtech? Yeah, you know, I do. I I think that sometimes to ignite um, a movement behind something, you do need a term, you know? And so in some ways, I respect that we need fem- I, I respect that we need femtech as a term. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that we need it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, it, yeah. it should just be health tech. It should mm-hmm. just be healthcare. It shouldn't yeah. be seen, you know, Ooh, you're working in women's health. Like what a niche market. And you're like 50% of the population mm-hmm. does not fit the definition of a niche market, you know? No. So I think that's kind of where I am. It's a, I kind of understand that it's necessary in some yeah. way, but I wish that it wasn't. Yeah. I tell people if I do my job well, hopefully femtech won't be a word anymore <laughs> because the ultimate goal is that it's just healthcare that actually considers sex as a variable, right? Right. Um, that actually brings up a good point I wanted to talk about is in the book, you said that you found that male investors felt were more comfortable when you said transvaginal versus just vaginal. Tell us about that. I have founders come to me all the time, you know, asking, hey, you know, in my company, we like to say chest feeder instead of breast feeder. Like if I go to investors, should I say that? Like, or just saying the word vagina, you know, or should we make a joke out of it? I did a TED talk at Pfizer and they, and I said vagina in the first two minutes of my script. And they said, hey, the first time can you, when you say vagina, can you almost make it like a joke to like ease people into it? And I'm like, you're freaking Pfizer. <laughs> what? That <laughs> is know? ridiculous. Yeah. I cannot believe that still happens. Yeah. Oh, because I was going to say, nah, man, these days just say vagina. These days, yeah, people yeah, are more but woke. But yeah. if you think you just had that experience, I can't believe yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, for me, for sure, when I, I mean, I had to say the device is placed through the vagina. You know, it's like that. It was a fundamental part of the product. (laughs) That's the door. That's the yeah. That's the door. That's the glorious (laughs) door. And um, and I would just notice the men in the room would either like lean out, yeah, eyes got really lean or lean in, you know. And it's like, why is this? What word? What what type of impact is this word having on you? You know. Um, and so eventually I decided to say, you know, transvaginal. And I think where I am in my career now, I would probably just like say vagina if I needed to yeah, in the yeah. future, you know, um, and hopefully we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. I, I still think it's good to know when you're saying a word that might trigger an audience a certain way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because you kind of want to be aware of it. That's another reason why, you should know your pitch like the back of your hand before you go in to actually pitch so that the majority of your brain is actually working on reading the room, you know? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> if you can get yourself there, then you'll know, okay, I lost the investor on this part of the presentation when I was talking about it, you know, or they were really interested in the market size or the clinical indication or whatever it might be. So I think I do think it's good to be... Um, tuned in. Yeah. No, I love that. The EQ is so vital. If you're just reading your script and not changing it based on your audience, like you've, you've missed, you missed a mark. (laughs) First of all, your slides should be for them, right? If it's for, uh, you know, female founder investors, you're going to highlight that you're a woman and you have female leadership and done, 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 you know? And like, if it's not a female founder fund, like 
just being your female self is enough, right? You don't need yeah. to have all slide about that, right? So yeah, you have to read the room. Just walk in there and you're like, just in case you didn't notice, I am a woman, <laughs> I am brown, you know? It, yeah, And I have a no. vagina. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. If you want to really freak them out. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about pivoting. I love this and I, I really identified the, with this in my current life, right? So Femtech Focus originally was a podcast. Obviously, we're still doing that. But like we had, and we have a virtual community. But at one point, we were like, should we make like an angel network? Another time we thought making an accelerator. And like, I've even talked about that on the show. I'm sure old episodes, you can still hear me being like, we're going to launch a Femtech angel network, right? Like, and that didn't happen. So people I don't you right. And so sometimes I even why didn't that happen? Because of pivoting. Why did we pivot? Because we had some new information or we did a pilot, didn't work out and we moved on, right? Right. Onto things that were working better. But I even have doubts sometimes. And I'm like, do I even know what the hell I'm doing? Like, we just keep trying stuff. Like, do I know what the hell I'm doing? Right. And like, now we've landed on Fem Health Insights and it's, it's really gaining momentum. And so we think we found it. I wanted to ask you in your book, you know, originally your idea was a camera in the fallopian tube, and then it turned into a inflatable balloon that collected cells from the fallopian tube. So tell us about how you handled insecurities about thinking your design needed to pivot. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting because I always tell founders that you should fall in love with the problem you're trying to solve and not necessarily a specific mm-hmm solution or product. Um, and that's hard because, you know, a product is something you basically give birth to, and then you devote so much time to, and then, you know, you develop forward and that sort of thing. So people put their money in. That's another one for me was like, they freaking paid for that one. Like, how am I going to tell them we're changing it? You know, and that's the thing. Ultimately, what investors, yes, of course, some of them care about the field and generally what they're working on, but what they ultimately want is an exit, right? What they all, like, what they ultimately want is a return. Yeah. And so, basically, having to talk to them and convince them that, like, hey, look, I've discovered something new, and this is where the this is where the return's going to be. You know, I'm actually I'm actually doing this to to get to the end goal that you want. You know. Yeah. And so, yeah, it takes a while to get yourself mentally ready for a pivot, your co-founders, your team, your investors, it's this whole thing, right? But I think exactly like you had brought up as we're discussing, going back to the fundamental reasons and motivations for why someone is doing something and then framing it in that way to them is really helpful, you know? Because clearly you wouldn't be leaving this product again that you basically gave birth to unless you thought there was a better option. Yeah. So collect that data, get your story together and understand what other people's motivations are. So like telling your investors about the pivot, their motivation is getting money back. And so explain how this has more likelihood of succeeding is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also appreciated that in the book, you say that you were kind of secretly working on it yourself. And so I think that that also feeds into like, like you had to prove to yourself first, you know, before you turn the whole ship, you were like, uh, let me do my own mini pilot. So thought that was really awesome too. Yeah. I mean, I think, sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I think that a little bit of validation each step of the way from different people starting with you is really important, you Mm -hmm. know? 
So that's why it, I try not to bother everybody else with every fleeting thought that went through my head. Because <laughs> if you're a founder, that. like if you, I mean, if you're like me, I got a lot of ideas. I was telling some founder I'm advising. She was like, I secretly started another company. Am I a bad person? And I was like, girl, I secretly started a, a beach pillow product company and taught myself how to sew during the pandemic because I had this random idea for a beach pillow, you know, and I was like, founders like us have lots of ideas. It's okay. (laughs) So do you feel like that too? You got lots of fleeting thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've just learned, you know, kind of which ones to act on, which ones to communicate that sort of thing, you know, but if part of what makes you an inventor is that you're an innovator, you have things Mm -hmm. that cross your mind, you know? Yeah, that's right. Well, I want to touch on one more important topic before we talk about where you're currently at in your career at Y Combinator. Um, in the book, you talk about burnout. Um, you know, did uh, you know what you were experiencing? It sounds like you maybe you knew at the time, but also didn't deep at, uh, appreciate it as much as in retrospect when you're looking back and kind of that's at least how I read it. So like, did anyone in your life tell you that you seemed like you were burning out at the end? Do you wish somebody had? Um, And what do you tell somebody who's listening that's thinking, I think I might be burning out? Okay. So that's a series of really good questions, you know, and, and almost one questions that I'm going to jot down and think about more deeply after. So I, I think they deserve being explored, you know, thoroughly. What I could say off the bat is I think that what I knew at the time is that I was tired. I don't think that I admitted to myself that I was burned out. I didn't think at the time, honestly, I think part of me thought that I couldn't, I wasn't someone that could burn out. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. I, you know, I think I thought, oh yeah, I'll just keep pushing through it. It's fine. You know, because I have, I had for such a long time, for 10 years working, you know, 12, 14 hour days, just getting stuff done and actually having fun doing it, you know? And when I had my kid though, that kind of takes you to that next level of having too many first priorities. Mm-hmm. And I no, nobody on my team or anybody else said that I was burnt out. And I think that, and I do wish somebody had, um, and I think it's, they were kind of in the same boat as me and and that I don't think they, they thought either that I could burn out, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I do wish there was someone there that would have signaled it. And it was interesting because I, I read this book 10% happier and then thrive. And those books are actually what highlighted to me that, oh yeah, what was I, what what I was going through was burnout, you know? And I, I don't know. Um, I remember my husband starting to get sort of annoyed with me because I would start a sentence and trail off and not even realize that I didn't finish my sentence, which is actually, I think a classic symptom of being burnt out. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe it's just baby brain or something. Um, But I think that if you're a founder right now who is feeling or a person right now who's feeling like you are burnt out, it's I know it's an it's an impossible thing to sometimes to feel like you can actually act on it. I do think the very first step is just acknowledging Mm -hmm. that, hey, look, I am more than just tired. One way one way to understand that I kind of tease out if I'm tired or burnt out is if I can see 
an end to me feeling tired? Mm. Or am I in the same exact routine every day without any end in sight? Mm -hmm. Then how am I going to start feeling better? How am I going to stop feeling tired? You know? Um, And so then something in that daily routine needs to change, right? The time needs to be pulled from something. Deadlines have to be pushed out, you know, because a company can't succeed with a totally burnt out founder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, admittedly, I was reading that part of the book and I was like, where are her friends? She sounds like she was in real crisis. Oh my gosh. Like this sounds terrible. And then I was like, well, Britt, at the end of Faramore, what were you like? And I was like, oh my God, I was so sick. I had an active eating disorder. I was super underweight. My hair was falling out. I had, my boyfriend had just broken up with me. I was moving out. Uh, my company didn't look like we were fighting with Apple about getting back on the app store. So it wasn't looking promising. And you know what I, it brought up to me. I remember I had two friends that were helping me move and that whole move. I was just like crying the whole time. It was just like, not healthy, not healthy. And I remember two, two friends in two separate occasions while helping me move said, Hey, Brett, what do you think about like just getting a regular job? And I thought to myself, out of everything that's happening right now, they're suggesting I just get a regular job. And But it was the fact that two of them separately kind of gently brought it up. And I thought, oh, my God, like maybe being a founder right now is just is draining me too much, you know. And and I look at how I lead today and I have I put the gym in my calendar Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons. I'm like, I I need to move my body and think about what we're doing, you know, like and I have now seen that as a business strategy move for me is like, I literally have to go to the gym two afternoons during the week, but right before this interview, that's where I was, you know, but today I see that as absolutely vital to the longevity of what we're trying to do here. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I love that. I'm sorry that you went through all of that. And I'm also happy that you've kind of found the solution because I do think that being deliberate about your time and actually putting self-care on the calendar is incredibly important because otherwise if you, you can't just say, Oh, I'll work out when I have time when work is at a lull. Hell no. Cause you're going to launch your website. Then you got to file your patent and then you're going to have to recruit this investor. Like there's always the next big thing. No. Yeah. There's never like the work doesn't end. How are you going to get to a place where you're like, Oh, okay. There's no work here. That doesn't happen. That's not a real thing. (laughs) So yeah, just by, and then, you know, a lot of folks ask me when you have kids, how do you balance the kids and the work? And it's the same thing. You have to have precious time that's just blocked out where nothing else can be scheduled. So you pay attention, you know, so that you pay attention to them, yourself, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think being deliberate about your time management is so important. So good, Survey. This has been so awesome talking to you, just chit-chatting. I was like I told you before we started recording, uh, I feel like I know you having read this. So this was a really great book. Listeners, please go get your copy. You will not regret it. What a good read. I feel um just it, it helped me reflect a lot on my own experience. So I really appreciate that. Do you mind telling our listeners, you know, what you're currently up to? Um, if, you know, under what circumstances should they reach out to you? And, you know, what's what's your goal moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So after the company was acquired in 2018, I spent a couple of years at Boston Scientific. 
And as I was leaving, I was approached by Jared Friedman over at Y Combinator about, you know, potentially taking over the role of um, YC partner who does most of sort of the healthcare and biomedical device type of investing. And I uh, did sort of a consulting role with them for a year, which is a visiting partner role. Um, and then quickly realized how much joy it was bringing me to work really closely with founders and open doors as, as often as I could. So then um, about a year later, I made partner. And so I'm group partner there at Y Combinator. I have invested in 22 women's health companies in two years. Uh, so I do a ton of investing in that space. I also do synthetic biology, computational biology, of course, generative AI uh, in the healthcare space. Um, so yeah, you should reach out to me whenever you have a cool idea, you know, um, or if you read my book, I'd love to hear from you, you know, it just, uh, and you know, you could find it on Amazon, you can find it at your local bookstore, you may have to go ask the the desk for it. But um, yeah, so at this point, doing a lot of work around why Combinator working with entrepreneurs and um, hopefully getting the word of the book out as well. Well, Serby, without a doubt, you are amazing. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to my interview with Serby Sarna, the founder of successfully exited femtech company Envision and current partner at Y Combinator. Be sure to get your copy of her book, Without a Doubt. We've included links to the show notes. Make sure you get it today. Okay, Femme fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 Femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.